But it's good to be here with the church body that I see passionate for growing the kingdom. And it's fun to be able to see the way that God is working here. I'm excited. So before we look into God's word, let's just pray once again and just ask God to use this time for his glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of mercy. And Father, we are praying this day that your message would come forth in truth. And Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would touch each life very personally here. Father, each person here has a story. Some people here do not want to be here. Some people here are very excited. Some people know that they need a Savior. Some are convinced that they're doing just fine as that their own Savior. So, Father, wherever we might be, this day we would pray that we would hear truth for our point in the journey and that by your Holy Spirit that we would experience deep life transformation today. So we give this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Sight is an amazing thing. Maybe it's the thing that you take for granted. You wake up and you open up your eyes and you see and you don't even think about that. I was able to think about this a bit more because I saw this amazing article about this man who, through the amazing advances as far as surgery, had spent his life in blindness and all of a sudden he was able to see. And there are more and more stories like that, just all of the things that they could do now for eyesight. This was a man who had been blind in Kansas. His eyes were open, and all of a sudden, for the first time in his life, he was able to see. And he was walking through his story with this man and just kind of sharing more and more about how it was so amazing to see the colors and to see his family for the first time. And this man was actually like a reporter. It was a story. And he kept pressing for, you know, just like you know, something else. And he said, yeah, but what was the most amazing thing about eyesight? What was the most incredible thing? And his answer fascinated me. He didn't say, you know, it was just a sunset or it was the Ozarks or it was just, you know, the, you know just like the wind in the wheat. He said this. He said, the most amazing thing about being able to see has been this so far. I know that leaves fall, and I know that people rake them and put them in the piles, and they burn them or just throw them away. But in my mind, I'd always imagined that leaves would come down just like a blanket. I didn't know that when leaves fall, that they pitch and they glide and they turn in the wind as they come to rest upon the ground. Watching a leaf fall, it's beautiful. I would have never said that about a leaf. And in one sense, that just amazed me. And I thought, you know what? I take my eyesight for granted. I don't just thank the Lord that I'm able to see these things around me. Sight and blindness is really the theme of the text that we're going to look at today. It comes from Mark chapter 10, and it's a story that you might know about a man who we have come to know as blind Bartimaeus. Mark chapter 10 is a great part of Mark. You see, Mark writes this account for us of the life of Jesus. It's historical, it's very, very theological, and it's very practical. He spells out for us, here's the story of the life of Christ. And you can really break it into three parts of the story. He starts off from the very start until chapter 8 and verse 22 and tells us about the life of Jesus up north around Galilee and the things that he does there and his ministry there. And then from 8 on to the end of 10, it tells us about the fact that there's a journey from the north to the south, and then, 10 on, and then actually uh, from that point on, it's more and more about Jerusalem and the fact that he will face the cross and then ultimately the glory of the resurrection. So we kind of have this three-act play. 
It's interesting that Act 2 begins and ends with a story which is, you know, which are very similar. It's a story about the fact that Jesus heals a person who is blind. And that really creates the context for this whole section. It creates the context for the fact that so many are spiritually blind, not just physically blind, but this section also deals so much with those who just absolutely cannot see. So we're going to hit these this amazing part of this story where Jesus in that last half heals a blind person, but in doing so tells us a great deal about ourselves and the great deal about the fact that we need to see and how he can practically bring hope and life and meaning to where we are. So we're going to start off and we're going to just kind of walk through the fact that there is some real bold faith here. There's the bold faith of this man, blind Bartimaeus. And just to kind of give you some somewhat of like the context of the story, he's a blind man, which means that every day he's going to wake up and do the exact same thing. He's going to wake up on his straw bed. He's going to try to get dressed. He's going to tap his way to the main gate and take his seat amongst all of these, you know, all of these other beggars. He's going to go to the same place where he goes every day. There's no joy in his life as far as we know. There's no happiness. There's no future. It is just a very heartbreaking existence. Maybe when his parents realized that he was blind, maybe they actually abandoned him, which was commonly done back then, because they thought it was a curse of sin. Or even worse, maybe his family was the one who encouraged him to go beg, and they were actually using him to make money at this point. So we're going to pick up this story from Mark 10, and we're going to read about the fact that Jesus is with his friends. He's actually with his 12 disciples and a large crowd as they approach Jericho. So, verse 46. So, they're they're all there in Jericho. Jesus, he's got his disciples and a large crowd. And there's a blind beggar there whose name is Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. He's there by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, he's calling you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and he came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, I want to regain my sight. I want to see. And Jesus said to him, your faith has made you well. Immediately, he regained his sight and began following him on the road. It's incredible. So they approached Jericho, and there's massive crowds with Jesus. Why are there massive crowds? Because Jesus already has this huge following? No. He's with some people that are there because they know about Jesus. But it's a massive crowd because it is right before Passover. And during Passover, the entire nation would make its way to Jerusalem, to ultimately the temple. That's where you would want to go to be a part of the sacrifices, to be a part of Passover. So this is the time of year where everybody all throughout the nation comes and they're in Jerusalem. Actually, Jerusalem swells to about three times, actually, its normal population. So you would want to get there. You would not want to pass through despised 
Samaria. So you would go on the east side of the Jordan, come down the Jordan, and then cross over right there at Jericho, and then up the mountains, and you would ultimately find yourself in Jerusalem. But you would pass through Jericho, which means this would be the one time of the year when everybody would be passing through. Crowds would be absolutely massive. If you're a blind beggar, it's like you're a person that has a retail store and like it's almost Christmas, you know, and then like those three weeks ahead of time, you're going to do, uh, you're going to do more business than you'll do in months and months in just those few weeks. This is like Christmas for a blind beggar. This is this, this is the time of year where these massive crowds will come and you'll be able to beg and very likely get more than you would ever get in months and months. People would be feeling generous. It's the Passover season. So blind Bartimaeus hears that this person, Jesus, is about to pass by. He's heard about Jesus. He knows it's not just any Jesus. He actually says, Jesus of Nazareth. And so as Jesus is passing by, Bartimaeus believes this is his big opportunity. This is his chance. Now, he can't run to Jesus. He can't climb a tree like, you know, know, others might do. He can't see him, but he hears the fact. He hears his surroundings, and he knows that Jesus is very close, so he does the one thing that he knows how to do. He starts to yell and scream. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's his cry to Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's incredible that that would be the thing that he would sh- you know, shout out and say. It's incredible because he is, first of all, saying, have mercy what is mercy? What does it mean for God to have mercy on us? I think the best, best definition comes from actually Psalm 103, and it starts off in verse 8. It says this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in kindness. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. That's a great picture of mercy. We don't know what this man knew actually about the Old Testament, but he knew enough to know this. That in 2 Kings 7, there is a clear passage there that says, Jesus Christ will be the son of David. The the one who will come to be our savior, to be our king, to be our Messiah, will come from the line of David. So when he says, Jesus, son of David, he is making very clear, he believes that this is the one who has been foretold. He's saying, I believe that this is the one who we have been waiting for. It's interesting, but in the entire Gospel of Mark, this is the only time that we have that phrase, Jesus, son of David. But understand this, when blind Bartimaeus says that basic phrase, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, he is saying three incredibly important things. This is his confession in one sense. And this confession, these amazing declarations, come with a risk. There's a real price here that could easily be paid. First of all, when you say, have mercy on me, you are confessing, I can't fix myself. You know what, I've got issues in my life, I've got problems, I've got things going on, and I simply can't fix myself. It takes humility to get to that point where you say, you know what, I've got issues in my life, I can't make them right. And then second, he says, Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. When he calls out to Jesus, he's saying, hey, I know that I can't fix my life, but I believe that Jesus can fix my life. I believe that he is the one who can bring hope, who can bring answers, who can bring basic direction and guidance and life itself to me. But the one that is really the risk of his life is when he says, Jesus, 
son of David, have mercy on me. Why is that at the risk of his life? Because at this point, Israel is occupied by Rome. The Romans are everywhere. As a matter of fact, the Israelites at this point, they want to have another exodus. They want to be let out because the those who are there are actually oppressing them. And the Romans absolutely believe that there is a king, there is a savior, there is a God, and his name is Caesar. And to confess anybody else as being the ultimate king actually then is worthy of death. You would have to bow down to worship Caesar. Everything was about Caesar. So when he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, he is clearly saying, I do not believe that Caesar is the Savior. I believe that Jesus is. I believe that Jesus is the one who gives hope. I believe that Jesus is the one who can help me and give me life here. There's humility in that. There's incredible childlike faith in just saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. See, I think that we need to have a little bit of that helpless spirit. We need to have a little bit of that desperate spirit that says, God, I can't do this on my own. I cannot fix my life on my own. I desperately need you. One thing that sticks in my mind very, very clearly is when my daughter Sarah was four. By the way, Sarah is here. And it's graduation weekend. She graduated yesterday from high school. So great accomplishment for her. Okay, I was waiting for the applause, but that's okay. Anyway, no, 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 you don't have to applaud. Sarah, do you want to sing a song or anything, sweetheart? No, no, okay, not today. But anyway, you know, one, 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 one thing that just really, really sticks in my mind was when she was four years old, there's, there's one night, and we're just about to pray, and she asked me this amazing question. She said, what is the very best prayer that we can pray? I thought, wow, four years old, that's a great question. So I thought long and hard, and I said, Sarah, that's, that's a hard question. There are so many great prayers that we could pray, but maybe the best prayer that we could pray is this. Jesus, help me. Just help me. It just acknowledges the fact that we can't fix our own life. It acknowledges the fact that we believe that Jesus can. Sarah said, you know what, I want to pray that prayer right now. And this also sticks clearly in my mind. It was so funny. So we bow our heads and she says, what's the prayer again? I forgot. (laughs) Help me. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Jesus, help me. I think that's the attitude that Jesus needs to hear from us today. Jesus, help me. There's crowds nearby, it says, and they begin to yell at him and rebuke him. In other words, shut up, be quiet. You're embarrassing us. Finally, we have a VIP passing through our town, and you're making us feel very small. You know what? Be quiet. It's incredible that he doesn't worry about what other people say. Keep in mind, his well-being depends on the fact that people like him. He's a beggar. He needs the approval of these people. These are the people who he's going to beg from each and every day. And yet these are the people say, shh, these people are passing through our town. Be quiet. But it says that he shouts all the louder. There's this incredible persistence. There is this boldness in his faith. There's this confidence in his faith as he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Is that the way that you approach God in prayer? Or do you approach God the more that you would approach a person that you might see out in a restaurant who's famous. You might walk up and say, oh, you know, I hate to bother you here. I know you're really busy. I know you've got a lot going on. You're taking care of 
you know, Pastor Christian and Billy Graham and other people, uh, but I just have this little thing. Is that the way that you approach God in prayer? I think a lot of us do. We're so timid. I think that this is a great picture of the fact that God wants us to approach him with confidence and boldness, knowing that he is indeed a God of mercy. So that when we pray, we can pray with that spirit. It's like Jacob who prayed and said, I will not let you go until you bless me. That we can come to God with a spirit of confidence, saying, God, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy upon me. And then second, it's interesting, we see that there is this contrasted faith of this man, blind Bartimaeus. Keep in mind that this story takes place in this broader context of chapters 8, 9, and 10. So Jesus asked this question, what do you want me to do for you? And this man Bartimaeus says, I want to receive my sight. What's amazing about that question is this. It was not the first time that day that Jesus had asked that question. As a matter of fact, only hours earlier, he had asked the exact same question when he is approached by two people that have been with Jesus now for years named James and John. And it goes like this. Turn to uh, Mark 10 and now verse 35. And I want you to think through this question. If Jesus were to come to you and say, what do you want me to do for you? What's your answer? Do you say, well, I want to have uh, more obedient kids. I want to uh, make more money. I want to have a larger house. I want my health to be absolutely perfect. If Jesus comes to you and says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you say? Let's see what James and John say. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and they said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And so here's that exact same question. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They said, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other sit at your left hand in glory. And then lightning came out of the fingers of Jesus and he vaporized them. Is that not in your version? Oh, that's my version. I'm sorry. That's what you want to have happen. Are you serious? You're seriously going to ask that? It says this. You don't even know what you're asking, said Jesus. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? They think about it. Yeah, we can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. In other words... I know how you're going to die, but you guys don't understand. You don't have a clue right now. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. The same question. What do you want me to do for you? James and John, greatness. Bartimaeus, I just want to see. James and John, we want to sit at your right hand. Bartimaeus, I just want my eyes to be open. James and John, we want honor. Bartimaeus, you know what? I just want hope. What do you want me to do for you? The contrast could not be further apart. It's staggering. You know what James and John want? James and John want a genie Jesus that you can take your Bible and just rub it and say, all right, Jesus, here we go. I've got, you know, I've got a lot of things I need. What do you want me to do for you? Well, definitely I want three more wishes after I get this first one. So many people want a genie Jesus who's just going to respond in any way, do what absolutely ever they want. Let me just ask you a, just a very practical question. 
Sometimes do you feel like James and John? Sometimes do you feel like it's just somehow become this picture that's all about you, and for somehow your eyes have just been blinded to the bigger picture? I mean, these stories paint a picture for us of these disciples as being buffoons in many ways. Once again, Act 2 is chapters 8, 9, and 10. It's fascinating that in each one of these chapters, three times, Jesus clearly predicts his death. He clearly says this in chapter 8. You know what, guys? Let me just make this abundantly clear. We're going to Jerusalem. I want to give my life. I'm going to suffer. I will be crucified. I will be raised again. And then Peter pulls him aside and says, Jesus, you know what? I probably know a little bit more about this than you do. Trust me, that's not the way it's going to happen. Peter rebukes Jesus for the plan. And then in chapter 9, Jesus spells it out. Guys, here's exactly what's going to happen. Here's exactly the way it's going to go. I'm going to suffer, be crucified, raised again. And then all of a sudden, there's this little group of guys talking, and Jesus says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they sheepishly say, we really didn't want to tell you, but we're actually arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And then in chapter 10, it is right after Jesus has said these things, right after Jesus predicts his death, that James and John come to him and say, hey, you know what, while we, you know, break away from the rest of the guys, we've got something very practical to ask you. Can we kind of rule with you? I don't want to be on the same throne with you, Jesus. I want my throne just to be a little bit lower than yours, but we would like to sit on, on your right and your left. You can't believe that these guys would even come to Jesus and say these things. Let me just say that on a... Note here on the side, this is how we absolutely know the Bible is true. Because the buffoons that are saying these things, these are the guys that wrote the Bible. These are the guys who are telling the story. If this wasn't true, you would never include this. You would never make this up if it it wasn't true. If you're going to make things up, you would say, you know what, boy, don't put anything in there that makes me look bad. And this makes them look like fools in many sense. Jesus is clearly spelling it out, and they simply don't get it. Is that your spirit sometimes, or are you more like blind Bartimaeus? Think back to when you first trusted in Jesus Christ. And maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you're still exploring Jesus. We're thrilled that you're here. This is a great place to come and just to explore the person and the message of Jesus. But think back to when you first trusted Jesus. You know, for some it might have been 40, 50 years ago. For some, 40 days ago. For some, it might have been actually this weekend. I want to guess that when you first trusted Jesus, you were probably more like blind Bartimaeus than you were more like James and John. I can think back to when I first gave my life to Christ when he first opened my eyes to see the truth of the gospel of Jesus. You know what? I was just happy to be on the team. I'm just happy to be along. I'm just like, man, I can't believe that God would be this kind to me despite all my sin and all my failure that Jesus would still call me. And it's amazing how over time, maybe our spirits become a little bit harder and we become more and more like James and John. After a while, we start to think, hey, you know what? What's in this for me? Now, I want to just confess a major confession to you. Is that all right? I want to be very, very honest. You might think less of me, uh, but I want to be re- really honest here. I had the chance to share some of these thoughts with some people about a month and a half ago. And um, as I worked through this passage, I thought, boy, you know what? A lot of these people I want to have a chance to share these things with, 
I think their hearts are more like James and John than like blind Bartimaeus. So in one sense, my prayer became this. God, by your Holy Spirit, let me blast these people. You know, may they really see they're wrong in this. And I pray that you would open up their eyes, that they would see that they're a lot more like James and John. And you know what? Sometimes, and I believe that it would be very steeped in sin, but sometimes I think the pastors, you know, we have a passage and we think, boy, I really hope this hits that person hard because, boy, they need to be rebuked. And sometimes I believe that God does use preaching in that way. But here's what happened. The morning I was going to preach this passage, God did something very unexpected. He spoke very deeply to my heart and made very, very clear, you don't need to blast anybody except yourself. Because if anybody is acting more like James and John, it's you. Your heart has gone from being that of like a blind Bartimaeus to being more like James and John. All of a sudden, it's more about being recognized and professionalism and do people like you. And I remember just confessing, I don't need to preach to anybody to blast them. The Holy Spirit has already blasted me. That so often, I have the spirit of a James and John. So I'll be as honest as I can be. My name is Jimmy, and I am a recovering Pharisee. Because every day of my life, I have to struggle with my own self-righteousness and realize that my only hope in life is actually the person of Jesus. So it's a practical question. More like blind Bartimaeus or more like James and John? You see, James and John were spiritual insiders. Bartimaeus was a spiritual outsider, and yet Jesus called to him. He was a nobody. He was a a beggar. He's a street person. He has no life ahead of him, and yet Jesus called calls to him. I love the fact that so much of the scriptures are about Jesus calling to people who we would think as being outsiders, racial outsiders, gender outsiders, political outsiders, moral outsiders, and saying, you are welcome in the kingdom of God. You are welcome to come to be a part of this. You see, so often we live in a culture that says, hey, if you want to get things done, it's got to be a certain type of a person. And back then, back in the times of Jesus, that was still very much that mindset. Hey, if you want to get things done, you know what? Use the older brother and use the wealthy, use the male, use the rich, use the good looking, on and on and on, use these types of things. Aren't you glad that things have changed? No, they haven't changed at all, have they? But Jesus, I love, flips the economy that we have in our culture. He takes our values and turns turns them on their head and says, you know what, the values of this world, I'm going to use the most unlikely people. I want to take the people that are weak, despised, marginalized, who feel like outsiders, and I'm going to use them for my glory. God does use those who have amazing gifts, but he uses them when they are wholly reliant and humbly obedient to what Jesus has called them to. But I love the fact that of all people, Jesus would call an outsider, a nobody, a street person to do his work, to be a part of his amazing kingdom. Friends, I believe that that is God's call to us today. He can use you. You might think, well, I don't have the gifts of a pastor Christian or others. That's absolutely fine. God delights in using the marginalized, the weak of the world for his glory and for his purposes. Then Let's look here at the fact that there is the sighted faith of this man, Bartimaeus. I love the fact that it says, Jesus stopped and said, call him. The king of the universe, the king of the entire universe who created all things, 
hears a man yelling, and everything comes to a stop. And I just have in my mind's eye this picture of this massive crowd and lots of noise and lots of background noise, but all of a sudden, Jesus stops. And everything becomes very quiet, and the only thing that you can hear is this man crying out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus does the thing that we love. Jesus says, you know what? Call him. Call him. They all call, you know, they all say, hey, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. It says, throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. And that's where Jesus asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see, I want to just, I just want to have my sight. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately, it says, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. I love the fact that in that text it says, throwing his cloak aside, he jumps to his feet and comes to Jesus. Why is that so important? Because, friends, if you're a blind beggar, your cloak is everything. Your cloak is your security. It is your warmth. It is your coat. It is your bed. It is your blanket. It's your identity. It's your entire life in one sense. When he throws aside his cloak, he is clearly saying, my identity has been this cloak. My whole identity is to be a blind beggar. And now, you know what? I want a new identity in Jesus. I want to take everything that I have and throw it aside. And when Jesus calls us to come to him, he's asking us, take all of those things that we find our identity in. It might be wealth. It might be riches. It might be addictions. Whatever things plague you. Jesus says, throw those things aside. Come to me, stand before me. When he comes to to Jesus, he comes and says, there is no plan B. I lay everything before the Lord now. I need a new identity in life. I need a new beginning in life. You might think, well, it was kind of a stupid question that Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? It's so obvious. Of course he wants his sight. Friends, it's not an obvious question. Listen. Listen. This is his entire life. This is his occupation. This is his very identity. When he says, I want to see, instantly he's out of work. Instantly everything will change. The status quo will be no more. The status quo might stink, but when it's the status quo, there's some security in that status quo. So he leaves that behind and says, Lord, I want a brand new beginning. So that's when he says, I want my sight. Jesus gracefully, amazingly reaches out. He's healed. At the start of that sentence, he can't see, and by the end of the sentence, he can. Instant healing. No surgery, no bandages, no recovery. Boom. Instant sight. And the first thing that he sees is the face of Jesus. Interesting that... If you read through, through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus heals multiple people. There are multiple healings that take place all throughout those Gospels. And yet this is the only story in, in all of those books that we have a name attached to a healing. We know that his name is Bartimaeus. We know his dad's name, son of Timaeus. As a matter of fact, in all the Gospels, 
We only have two names. Jesus raises up a man who's been dead, whose name is Lazarus, and now Bartimaeus. Those are the only two names that we have in the entire scriptures. Why would we have the name of this man, Bartimaeus? Why is it so important that we know his name? Now, I want to make very clear. Church history is not on par with, I mean, actually God's word. You have God's word here, and then church, church history is way, way down below. But church history can shed a great deal of light on the church and the way that it grew. And we have writings from Pliny and Josephus and others that explain to us and tell more and more about the life of Christ. One thing that's fascinating is this. We learn that this man Bartimaeus played a key role in the growth of the early church. Bartimaeus, it says, follows Jesus along the road, which I love that. I love the fact that he does not say, you know what? Listen, I've been out here begging for all these years. I should probably go take a shower I mean, I smell, oh my word, you know what, I really need to clean up here. Uh, I just, for the first time, I can see my clothes and my shirts and masks. You know what, let me just go change. He doesn't do any of that. It says he immediately follows Jesus on the road. Church history tells us he's going to follow Jesus to Jerusalem, that he will actually be present at the cross, that he will be present at the growth of the early church. So his name is extremely important as God uses him as a vessel, as a tool to be one of the great teachers of the early church. Can you imagine he stands up in front and he teaches and there's two guys in the front row and one guy says, man, that guy really blesses me. What a great teacher. And then the other guy says, dude, you know who that is, right? And the guy says, no, that's blind Bartimaeus. No, that's, are you serious? That's blind Bartimaeus. He played an incredible role in the early church. God used him. You know, I love the fact that blind Bartimaeus, when he says, have mercy, he's making very clear, I can't fix myself. What is amazing is we so much want to be able to have some role in what God does in our life. We want God to say, you know what, I'm I'm going to bring healing, but you're going to have to be a part of this. You know, so many of us want to have a quest. We want to be able to say, you know what? I made a massive contribution to my salvation. We want God to stand before us and say, hey, listen, I want to make your life right, but there's a few things that you've got to do first. First of all, bring me the broom of the Wicked Witch of the West. Second, take this ring, drop, you know, drop this ring in Mountain Doom. And third, you know, we want to have a list of things so that we can say, man, we were a part of this. And God makes very clear, this is a gift to you. This is why we say, have mercy. We don't say, you know what, God, you do my part, and, you know, I'll do my, you know, we're going to both do a little bit here. Have mercy upon me. Why? Because we are sinners, and we desperately need Jesus. And there are issues in every aspect of our life because of Jesus. And when we try to fix things on our own, it will always fall short. So I want to ask you three very, very practical questions this morning, all right? First of all, do you know that apart from Jesus Christ that you're blind? Do you know that you need to have your spiritual eyes opened? It's so interesting that in 8, 9, and 10 of Mark, the real real heroes are the blind and the children. The people who have sight, the 12 disciples, the scribes, and those who teach the law, those are the people who come across as being so far. You see, it's incredible that God says, hey, blind Bartimaeus, come to me, and it says he casts aside his cloak. The one thing he has, the one thing he owns, he casts it aside. Earlier, earlier he has just spoken with a man who is called the rich young ruler who can give up nothing. 
He has so much, and he can't give up one thing, and yet this man, blind Bartimaeus, can give up everything. Do you know that apart from Jesus, you're blind too? Have you just prayed that prayer and just said, Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me? That is such a practical prayer that we can pray. It makes Jesus so very real. Lord, here it is. I can't fix it. You can. I can't do this on my own. I can do nothing. I need Jesus. That is that prayer. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then that question, God asks you today, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus, I love the fact he does not say world peace. He does not say I want three more wishes. He says, I want to see. And I pray that that would be your prayer today. God, open my eyes. I desperately want to see. Let's pray together.